All right, if you've listened this far, you know the deal. The book that came out of this podcast is called How the Internet Happened, From Netscape to the iPhone by me, available wherever fine books are sold. Also, the podcast I do these days is called The Tech Meme Ride Home. Search any podcast app for Ride Home, and you should find The Tech Meme Ride Home, which is all the day's tech news every weekday in just 15 minutes. If you like this show, you'll love that one. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. As I'll explain in a minute, today, July 14th, 2015, can be considered the 20th birthday or anniversary of the MP3. And so to mark the occasion, we are today going to have an interview with the man who most people consider to be the, quote, father of the MP3, Carl Heinz Brandenburg. Now, because there's a lot of background required to explain the technology of digital audio compression, this will be sort of a hybrid chapter episode and interview episode all in one. I'll explain the background first, interspersed with some of Mr. Brandenburg's words from our interview. And then after that, as per usual, I'll have the entire interview posted unedited. Also, this is another episode that I'm releasing a transcript for on the website. So if you wanted to, you could read the whole thing as well. And if you do feel the need to share this episode on social media, please consider sharing the link to the post page from the website, not necessarily to this podcast. Uh, If some of you could submit the post page from our website to Reddit and Hacker News, that would be great as well. As you know, I can't self-promote on either of those sites, so if you could help me share, that would be much appreciated. Anyway, let's begin the story of the MP3. 20 years ago today, the following email made the rounds among the 40-odd engineers and researchers at the Fraunhofer Institute for Integrated Circuits in Germany. It was dated Friday, the 14th of July, 1995, and it was sent by Jürgen Zeller. It said, under the subject line, layer 3 file extension, .mp3, Hi all, this is the overwhelming result of our poll. Everyone voted for .mp3 as extension for ISO MPEG audio layer 3. As a consequence, everyone please mind that for worldwide web pages, shareware, demos, and so on, the .bit extension is not to be used anymore. There is a reason for that, believe me. 
smiley face emoticon. It's probably a bit silly to assign a single birthday to a technology that was developed over the better part of a decade and built upon many decades more of research and development. But the Fraunhofer Institute likes to cite July 14th as the day when the ISO standard IS11172-3 MPEG Audio Layer 3, which formerly had the file extension .bit, gained the extension that has become world famous, .mp3. This is the story of the MP3, the technology that revolutionized, upended, destroyed, transformed, take your pick, but definitely changed the music industry forever. The story of the MP3 begins not in Silicon Valley or Hollywood or Japan or really any of the other likely birthplaces of audio and digital technology, but in fact in the middle Franconian Bavarian town of Erlangen, Germany. In the early 1980s, a young student by the name of Karl Heinz Brandenburg was pursuing a doctorate at the University of Erlangen, Nuremberg, studying electrical engineering and mathematics and all of the areas where those disciplines intersected. This area of Germany is actually known as a hotbed for scientific, industrial, and academic innovation. The world-famous Fraunhofer Society for the Advancement of Applied Research is based nearby, as is the Max Planck Institute for the Science of Light and also numerous branches of Siemens AG's research and development facilities. For a student with polymath interests like Karl-Heinz Brandenburg, there was probably no better place to be. Here is Mr. Brandenburg himself to tell you about it. Doing both these degrees had to do with uh, not being able to decide. So, in fact, uh, I had the choice of electrical engineering, physics, um, computer science, and mathematics. So I ended up starting electrical engineering and trying at the same time, oh, I was always interested in mathematics. Can I do that at the same time? And we got a lot of topics in computer science as well. So it was really the idea to have a broad range of possibilities in the future. Brandenburg's thesis advisor was a man named Dieter Seitzer who had done pioneering work in the then-obscure discipline of psychoacoustics, which is the study of the way humans actually perceive sound. It turns out that the human auditory system is not an instrument that scoops up all of the frequencies in a given environment, like, say, a microphone does. What we as humans actually hear is not an accurate representation of reality, but only those sounds that the brain over the course of millennia of evolution, has determined to be the most important sounds for us to process. Once you understand this, then you can begin to understand the ways that human hearing can be manipulated. For example, most people can distinguish between two simultaneous tones that are a half note apart on the diatonic scale. But if the tones are brought closer together in pitch humans will actually only hear one tone. 
Another example would be the impossibility of having a conversation on the sidewalk when a loud truck goes by. The sounds of the conversation are present, but the brain does not process them in favor of the louder noise of the truck, which it considers to be more important. This is known as auditory masking, which we'll see in a second would be a key technique used in audio compression technology such as the MP3. When music and audio recordings were first digitized, an emphasis was placed on capturing the full and complete frequency range with total fidelity. But someone familiar with psychoacoustics, like Dieter Seitzer, knew that this was actually overkill, because the human ear and brain do not actually process or hear every tone or note or even sound that is preserved on a CD, say. And so in the early 1980s, Seitzer had a pet project that he called a digital jukebox. Sort of like a Spotify or Pandora way before its time, he envisioned a system where people could connect to a central server and order music to be delivered on demand over the new ISDN digital telephone lines that were beginning to be installed across Germany. The problem was, of course, that digital music files were simply too large to be transmitted, even over this broader band. A typical compact disc uses linear pulse code modulation, PCM, with a 16-bit sample rate. In other words, it takes about 1.4 million bits to store a single second of stereo audio on a CD. But to send this music over the wire the sound and the audio files would have to be compressed. Seitzer knew, of course, that this was possible if, using psychoacoustic techniques, he could take out all of the unnecessary data, all the unnecessary sounds that the human ear wouldn't pick up, and thereby compress the file down. Seitzer was aiming to compress down by a factor of almost 12 to 1, or about 128,000 bits per second. Seitzer applied for a patent on this pet project, only to be rejected by the patent office on the grounds that what he was trying to do was, quote, impossible. You shouldn't tell that uh, some German professor who has really an idea what he's doing. So I said, no, no, I don't think it's possible, and he was looking for a PhD student uh, who would take on the subject. And I have to admit, I knew enough about the state of the art that I thought, okay, the patent examiner is right. I will do some analysis, show why this is not possible. This will get me a PhD, and then I'm off to something real. And so, despite his own personal skepticism, Karl-Heinz Brandenburg took on Dieter Seitzer's pet project. But as Brandenburg delved into the research, he began to realize that compression on the level that Seitzer was asking for might not actually be impossible after all. Brandenburg was able to combine previous work done on speech coding with some of the insights Seitzer and others had discovered in terms of psychoacoustics to begin to make real headway. As previously mentioned, the audio masking technique was a big key in compressing the audio files in such a way that a human ear wouldn't notice the difference. 
Brandenburg developed a coding process that could filter a signal into layers of sound, which could be saved or discarded depending on his needs. In other words, he could systematically eliminate the parts of a sound recording that the average human ear wouldn't be able to hear anyway, and thereby gain that much space in the data file. For example, since lower tones cancel out higher ones, if there was a recording with overlapping instruments, say, Brandenburg could assign fewer bits to the tones that wouldn't register to a listener. Another example is related to the funny fact that the human auditory system cancels out noise before and after a loud click. So, in this example, Brandenburg would be able to eliminate a few precious bits around, say, a loud cymbal clash. The algorithm that Brandenburg developed could be run iteratively. And so, each time he ran a piece of music through his program, he could turn around and run the output of that back through the program again, reducing the audio file's size each and every time. Then Brandenburg combined this algorithm with others. First, he paired it with the basic data compression technique known as Huffman coding, which achieves lossless data savings by scanning for patterns and then calling back for them in the code when necessary. And then he applied the famous fast Fourier transforms, to break down the components of different frequencies. Keep in mind that all of this was being done on a graduate research budget and in a comparatively primitive computing era. Brandenburg and the growing team helping him had to compete for time on the university's mainframe. As an example, they could only test 20 seconds of music at a time, due to the limited capacity of hard disks. And heck, this was still in the age of three-and-a-half-inch floppy disks that had to be transferred from computer to computer. Brandenburg achieved his biggest breakthrough by 1986, when he was only 31 years old. And in fact, he received his first patent for his algorithms before he even defended his thesis. Brandenburg's technique and thus Seitzer's original pet project, was theoretically proven by even this early date. But in practice, there would be a long process of refinement ahead. Even though the algorithms worked on paper, they had to be tweaked for every possible type of sound, every possible type of music, instrument, or even recording. And the tweaks had to be made precisely, meticulously. In other words, Brandenburg and his team would spend the next several years making hands and ears on adjustments to the algorithm. At this point, Brandenburg had followed his mentor, Seitzer, to the Fraunhofer Institute for Integrated Circuits. The Fraunhofer Society is a government-funded research organization, sort of like a German Bell Labs, but funded by the German government. So Brandenburg's work could graduate from a graduate thesis project to something more comprehensive. It was clear that it needed to be tested with completely different type of music. Uh, so uh, I said we had some funding uh, from a project, uh, and from this I went to a local CD store, and I remember I told them, okay, 
I need around 30 or 40 different CDs, all types of music. What would you recommend? <laughs> Which, of course, he looked at me and what? <laughs> so I came home with a couple of CDs just so we had enough data to try our algorithms on. Indeed, it would be in the testing of all these various acoustic possibilities that Brandenburg and his team encountered a major roadblock in the person of Suzanne Vega. While Brandenburg's algorithm had been massaged to work well for most instruments, there was one instrument, the human voice, that it still had a lot of trouble with. And Suzanne Vega's a cappella version of her most famous song, Tom's Diner, put these difficulties into stark relief. I read in some high-fidelity, uh, high-end journal that people used Susan Vega's uh, song Tom Steiner, the a cappella version, to test loudspeakers. And then I got to the Fraunhofer lab and I saw, oh, they have the CD, let me listen to it. And I listened to it and then I said, okay, please transfer that to the computer. At that time, that was not yet easy. Mm -hmm. I need to try this. And that was, yeah, first a catastrophe because this song turned out to be much more difficult than anything else we had used before. Let's hear a sample of the song that he's talking about. I am sitting in the morning at the diner on the corner. I am waiting at the counter for the man to pour the coffee. And he fills it only halfway. And before I even argue, he is looking out the window at somebody coming in. After running this recording through the algorithms, Vega's emotional yet clear vocals came back hoarse, transformed in a way that sounded completely unnatural. So at the lower bit rates, it's no longer her voice, but like uh, yeah, being very hoarse, uh, distorted in some way. In fact, uh, you can explain it in one way that human ears are specially trained to get clean understanding of human voice so we are we want to understand speech uh, so uh, the we seem to be more susceptible to changes to our voice signals than to other and on the other hand in terms of signal processing this signal had some properties which just made it more difficult than others uh, in the end, we found out with this method that our models of human hearing were, in fact, too simple, not good enough. So we had two big steps to get rid of that problem. The first one was to get better understanding of human hearing and change our so-called psychoacoustic models. And... Then, at some point in time, we started to do uh, stereo encoding using uh, similarities between left and right channel. And because Susan Vega really stands in the middle of this piece, uh, of course, 
when using this, uh, things became easy. After thousands of tiny tweaks to the algorithm, and God knows how many times listening to Tom's Diner, a song that I think we all know tends to stick inordinately in a person's head anyway, it turned out that Vega led the way to Brandenburg and his team perfecting the algorithm. In the end, it worked out, and we were really for a number of years hunting for such difficult items to find out where the problems are. It's even today to do something which is nice for 70% of the music is very easy. That's an undergraduate project. Mm -hmm. But to get it to the level that it's really perfect or near perfect for everything, that's the work. Brandenburg himself would actually meet Suzanne Vega years later and would even hear her perform a version of Tom's Diner in person. He claims that he still enjoys the song, despite having heard it possibly more times than anyone else on the planet. Perhaps at this point, it would be useful to use Tom's Diner as an example. What follows is a version of that exact same recording, the a cappella version of Tom's Diner. But what we'll hear now is not all of the sound that is left in after the MP3 process, but actually all of the sounds that, because of Brandenburg's algorithm, the MP3 process takes out of the recording. Karl-Heinz Brandenburg finally published his thesis paper in 1989. His algorithm became known as Optimum Coding in the Frequency Domain, OCF. The next step now was to get the technology out to the world. This was never intended to simply be a research project, remember, but to have practical application. Around this time, in the early 1990s, there were several new technologies coming to market that were actually looking for an audio encoding standard to utilize, among them CD-ROMs and DVDs. Then as now, the committee that decides which standards are included in consumer technologies is the Moving Picture Experts Group, or MPEG. Brandenburg and his team from Fraunhofer were among 14 different groups that would submit entries to MPEG, confident that their audio encoding technique was far and away superior to any others. But the Fraunhofer group were up against competing technologies backed by major multinational corporations. Their biggest com competition, in fact, came from a group called MusicCam, which had strong ties to the Dutch corporation Philips, which famously held the patents on the compact disc. Brandenburg's technique actually produced better audio quality while using less data, seemingly the holy grail. But MusicCam's technique used less processing power, which was not an insignificant consideration at the time when you remember that the speed of most processors was several generations worse than what we enjoy today. 
There was plenty at stake in this sort of competition, this bake-off, because a fortune in licensing fees was waiting to be collected on behalf of whatever technology was chosen. In the end, after a Byzantine round of politicking and perhaps backroom dealing, a compromise was announced. There would be three standards adopted. The Moving Picture Experts Group Audio Layer 1 would be a compression method optimized for digital cassette tapes. Music Cam's method would be named Moving Picture Experts Group Audio Layer 2, and it would be chosen as the standard for a bunch of things. Digital FM radio, CD-ROMs, digital audio tape, over-the-air HDTV, and, most crucially, for the audio tracks on home DVD players. Brandenburg's algorithm would be assigned the name Moving Picture Experts Group Audio Layer 3, but it was not chosen for any technology at all. In a way, it would seem at that point that MPEG Layer 3, which would of course officially be named MP3 in 1995, had lost. It was an orphan standard. In fact, Brandenburg himself had already led the development of a successor technology to MP3, Advanced Audio Coding, or AAC. And so at this point, it seemed that the MP3 was destined for the dustbin of history. But a funny thing happened on the way to obscurity. Because around this time, two new technologies were bursting onto the scene in the mid-90s that would prove to revive the fortunes of the MP3. Those two technologies were the World Wide Web and Windows 95. Partially on a lark, but possibly in an effort to revive MP3's flagging fortunes, Brandenburg, who was by this point a director at the Fraunhofer Institute, directed his team to begin developing a software player for MP3s that could be released to work on Windows computers. It was, of course, the Windows practice of having three-character file names that led, of course, in July of 1995 to the MP3 officially becoming the MP3. And so, at this point, in a way, MP3, the unloved stepchild of the audio standards, would suddenly find itself as the right technology in the right place at exactly the right time. Because in 1995, computer hard drives of about one gigabyte in size were only now starting to become common. So for users, file storage space was a paramount concern. And of course, in 1995, the people getting online were doing so at 28K baud modem speeds, or 56K at best. And so this made bandwidth another major issue. And then finally, in a weird way, losing out and becoming MP3 worked in MP3's favor because even though Music Cam was at exactly the same time trying to get its .mp2 files out onto the web, for the hundreds of millions of uninitiated users adopting Windows 95, when you saw an mp2 file next to an mp3 file, wouldn't you logically think, hey, 
MP3, that's got to be the latest, greatest standard, right? So I still remember one meeting, I think it must have been in 94, uh, when we discussed different options in our department and we said, okay, we have a window of opportunity to make MPEG Audio Layer 3 into the Internet Audio Standard. That was a time when uh, there were just the first applications like Progressive Networks was out there with Real Audio. Mm -hmm. Now the company is called Real Networks. Right. Um, and so on. So we said, okay, we have a chance. What do we need to do? In fact, around the same time, PCs for the first time got fast enough to do on-the-fly coding of layer 3 signals. Mm -hmm. We first had to do some bad tricks to make that work, but it did. So you could have, if your computer was equipped with a sound card, which at that time was not yet standard, if it was equipped with a sound card, you could uh, have an MPEG Audio Layer 3 file on your hard disk and listen to the music. And so exactly at the time that the World Wide Web takes off and gains mainstream acceptance, MP3, by accident or design, took off at the exact same time as the standard for audio files on the web. As mentioned, of course, there were many competitors, such as Real Audio's .ra files, which came to be understood to be for audio streaming, as well as Microsoft's own WMA files, which never quite took off on their own. Brandenburg and Fraunhofer helped MP3 gain traction online by pursuing a Let a Thousand Flowers Bloom approach. They released MP3 players and encoding software packages as free-to-use shareware on the Internet. When the first MP3 websites began to debut as early as 1995, the Fraunhofer Institute didn't bother them about things like licenses and were in fact supportive to the growth of the communities. And they also took a hands-off approach when developers on their own began to adopt the MP3 technology. Popular music software packages like Winamp were allowed to find their audience before Fraunhofer eventually would approach them gently and politely about the licensing agreements. And this strategy paid off handsomely because in just a few short years... By the late 90s, MP3 would replace sex as the most searched-for term on search engines. Entire websites and online communities sprang up solely to trade and disseminate MP3 files. MP3 became the de facto standard for digital audio worldwide, and the Fraunhofer Society was suddenly in line to begin raking in those licensing fees that it had missed out on all those years previously. Very early on, Microsoft would license MP3 technology for inclusion in its Windows Media Player. When the first MP3 hardware devices, such as Sehan Information Systems' MP-Man F10, came out in 1998, by the way, it only had 32 megabytes of on-device storage, which was enough for 
only about half an album's worth of songs encoded at 128 KB. Obviously, in the years to come, it would continue to do so. And so with every copy of iTunes that was shipped, not to mention every copy of an iPod or Zune or iPhone that was sold, or really any cell phone that was capable of MP3 files, the Fraunhof Society would get its license for the inclusion of MP3 technology. I think we took the right compromise in terms of business models uh, to, on one hand, still keep uh, royalty uh, income flowing, and on the other hand, making it easier to be used for PCs and for internet applications. Even before the iPod, I remember I was on a business travel to Hong Kong, and I saw some electronic store uh, showing in window 30 different brands and uh, versions of MP3 players. And I said, okay, that's it. Mm -hmm. We have one, <laughs> finally. But obviously, of course, this is only part of the story of the revolution that the MP3 unleashed upon the world of music. By the end of the 1990s, of course, came piracy, came Napster, came the entire upending of the music industry, the fallout from which we are still working through today. Carl Heitz Brandenburg says that Originally, his team was only focused on perfecting MP3 technology and helping the standard gain broad acceptance. But as early as 1994, an industry representative is reported to have told Brandenburg, do you know that you will destroy the music industry? When the MP3 standard was first released to the public, Brandenburg showed it to the recording industry only to receive a reaction that was something along the lines of, this is very interesting. You have done good research, but what has this to do with us? By the time that widespread piracy of MP3s began in the late 90s, Brandenburg and the Fraunhofer Society found themselves in an ironic situation. They were thrilled that MP3s had finally gained acceptance in the world. Their strategy of shareware distribution and the grassroots seeding of the technology had paid off exactly as planned. And because MP3 had become the de facto standard, they were finally profiting handsomely from hardware and software licenses. And yet, no one ever had the intention of, even tacitly, promoting the piracy of intellectual property. Of course, as we found later on, a lot of people did not care about who owned the rights, and that's something I never endorsed, and mm -hmm. <laughs> we never endorsed. Mm -hmm. So I still have the uh, strong opinion that musicians, all the artists, composers, and everybody helping to distribute music should be paid for their work. It's obviously a well-known cautionary tale, how the music industry, fractured as it was, could never quite get its act together in any meaningful way to address the rise of digital media. This is in spite of the fact that Brandenburg himself tried to offer solutions. 
in, I think it was early 1998, uh, I was for a visit in Washington, D.C. anyway. And I already had some contact uh, to the RAAA, the Recording Industry Association of America. So I wrote a mail. I could uh, come to visit you to discuss these issues. And said, yes, great. We have heard about you. We would love to talk to you. Uh, so I went to RAAA headquarters, discussed different strategies, what to do, and made it very clear we are not interested in the death of the music industry. Uh, in the end, uh, there was no direct come out from this, but later on, uh, people started the Secure Digital Music Initiative, SDMI. And that was then in nine. 2000, and I went to a lot of these meetings. Uh, we were into all these discussions about digital rights management and how to do that. Uh, the problem there was that uh, somehow there were some companies not interested in any technical standard, in any interoperability. And I told them, look, uh, you can either you take the task to do a technical standard which makes sure that every service selling music and every device work together. You have a universal system. Right. If you don't do that, I see a clear winner and that is MP3 without any protection, without any digital rights management. It's not our problem if that happens. Brandenburg says that he had the exact same insight that Steve Jobs would later have. The only real way to combat free music was to make paying for music as easy and painless as possible. I remember at the very first meeting of SDMI, I gave a short speech uh, on the plenary and I said, look, whatever you do, most important is ease of use. Second important is ease of use. Third important, it's ease of use, and then you have right. to look at other things. From a music industry perspective, I suppose you could say that the last decade has been a story of Apple and iTunes, followed by streaming companies like Spotify and Pandora, completely taking over music retail. But behind all of this is really another story, the underlying story of MP3 finally becoming the triumphant medium for music. In fact, it was just this year that digital music revenue finally overtook physical music sales for the first time. And through it all, Brandenburg is quite personally satisfied with the fruits of his research all those years ago. I have to admit, uh, I still sometimes feel like, am I dreaming or is this real? Uh, of course, as a young student, you are dreaming about success and things being used and so on. But things became so much more successful. Uh, it's really, for me, it's, of course, the story of my life. And Brandenburg says he is asked all the time if somehow he's one of these bitter inventors that has been forced to watch on the sidelines as others have made a fortune off of his invention. But in fact, 
as he is happy to point out, that has not actually been the case because due to German law, he has been amply compensated. The Institute has uh, made a lot of money. Uh, fortunately, compared to my colleagues in the U.S., in Germany, there's a law that if your company makes a lot of money from patents, then the inventors have to get some share of that. 20 years on, Brandenburg does not much like being called the inventor of the MP3 because, as he points out, there were so many different people around the world who contributed to the development of the technology. I always have the feeling, okay, everybody looks at me when talking about the invention of MP3, but I know who else was involved, and there are many more good ideas. There's JJ, there's a whole group in Erlangen, and so on and so on. So you would, you would resist the, the title father of the MP3 or anything like that? Yeah, because there's not one father. Right. Uh, somebody who has done very important contributions, certainly. Yes. So being in the first line is correct, but being the only one is completely incorrect. Correct or incorrect, I think you'll agree that Karl Heinz Brandenburg made perhaps one of the more important contributions to the story. And so, as promised, now begins the entire story in Karl Heinz Brandenburg's own work. Karl Heinz Brandenburg, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. You're welcome. Nice to be there. Um, I'd like to begin with just a little bit of, of your, your background. Um, I know that you've got degrees in both electrical engineering and mathematics, and your, your PhD is in electrical engineering. But I'm curious, when you, you, you first went to university, did you have an idea of what it was that you wanted to study? Really. <laughs> Doing both these degrees had to do with uh, not being able to decide. So, in fact, uh, I had the choice of electrical engineering, physics, um, computer science, and mathematics. So, I ended up starting electrical engineering and trying at the same time, oh, I was always interested in mathematics. Can I do that at the same time? And we got a lot of topics in computer science as well. So it was really the idea to have a broad range of possibilities in the future. Mm -hmm. And I'm also curious, uh, given what uh, you ended up doing, do you have a musical background at all? Do you, do you play an instrument or anything like that? Yes. As a child, like many others, I started with learning instruments and enough to know all the basics uh, about music and having played for many years. In fact, uh, when I was nearly ready uh, with my degrees, uh, that had to stop as well. In fact, it never stopped intentionally, but there was just no time. So I started with some of the usual instruments for kids, like recorder. I tried the piano a little bit, but never got anywhere. <laughs> and on, I guitar to have the guitar with me at the campfire. But you would definitely say you're, you're, you've always been a music lover. Oh, certainly, yes. Well, then to, to begin to get into um, 
how you got involved with um, digital music compression and things like that. Can you start by giving me a little bit of a background? I'm completely unfamiliar with this field, of course, but I'm curious to know just on a basic level where digital compression as a technology was when you first started to get involved. Um, is it fundamentally, is all compression the same or does it is it different depending on if it's data or images or sound or video, that sort of thing? There are some commonalities, but mostly it's different. So, in fact, uh, when I got into this, uh, the reason was I looked for some topic for PhD, and my thesis advisor uh, had been dreaming about transmitting music via phone lines. And and is that and, that's uh, Dieter Seitzer? Yes, that's Dieter Seitzer. And he had this dream, in fact, in the late 70s, he applied for a patent and he was told, okay, looking into all the literature, yes, we can compress this. We may be able to compress video, There's some work in speech, but music impossible. And in fact, he was looking for bit rates as low, quote, as 128 kilobits per second for the ISDN network. The, 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 patent, the, the patent examiner told him that was impossible. Yes. And you shouldn't tell that uh, some German professor who has really an idea what he's doing. So <laughs> I said, no, no, I don't think it's possible. And he was looking for a PhD student uh, who would take on the subject and I have to admit, I knew enough about the state of the art that I thought, okay, the patent examiner is right. I will do some analysis, show why this is not possible. This will get me a PhD, and then I'm off to something real. So your your original, you thought originally what you would end up doing is is proving that it was impossible. Exactly. <laughs> and and so, so that I'm clear, um, he he wants to try to send transmit music over ISDN. And so the main problem is the bandwidth and, and the, the amount of data going over those lines, right? Exactly. Yes. The amount of data. And again, at that time, CD was just in the preparation stage. And that was the reference really. To oh, get that, CD quality. That actually, that's a question that I have. So again, being unfamiliar with this, so what is what is on a CD like that? It's that's not compressed at all. That's the the full native data file, right? That's correct. CD is forty thousand four hundred uh, no forty four thousand one hundred samples per second. Sample at sixteen bit accuracy and two channel, so times two, and that ups adds up to a raw bit rate of some. 1.4 something megabit per second. So when uh, when you do take this on uh, to to see if if you can prove that <laughs> that this is impossible, uh, what what do you start to find? What 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 do you start to unlock about this problem? In fact, there was already some previous work, uh, including uh, later the next director of Fraunhofer in Erlangen, uh, Professor Gerhäuser. Uh, whose name should be familiar to everybody digging into this history as well. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, he, together with other colleagues, and Saitze had the idea, okay, let's look at the very best speech coding algorithms available today. Let's look at adaptive form coding. And then, uh, on the other hand, he was interested in hardware, in really building fast signal processing components. So within his thesis work, uh, there was a signal processor uh, with RAN uh, full-speed multiplication at 7 megahertz. And with pipelining could do something like 21 MIP for the fastest sequence of operations. <laughs> and uh, in fact, my diploma thesis was to implement this adaptive transform coding onto this digital signal processor. Mm -hmm. And with that, we did some experiments and they were really encouraging to go on this way. I think I read that um, you've said that the real real breakthrough or the real progress began in 1986. What what did you hit upon that, that led you to a, a breakthrough? Yeah, in fact, that was four years of trying around and getting accustomed, understanding the problem better and all that. And uh, we had uh, some funded project where I needed to write up some report. So I looked again at all we had tried and looked at some of the literature and uh, okay, I said, I know why adaptive transform coding is not good for coding music, at least not for some kinds of music. And I found some other ideas and it was, and in speech coding, in fact, at that time, people uh, had just started to do uh, this code-excited linear prediction early called stochastic coding stuff mm -hmm. uh, with doing analysis by synthesis. And the idea was really, oh, couldn't I apply this idea from speech coding in a completely different way, but still on a meta level, taking the same ideas to the problem of audio compression by doing things indirectly where people earlier on had tried to do it directly. And that was really the breakthrough idea in early 1986. So essentially, you're, you're designing some sort of a, a layered filter that you're, you're layering the signals um, into different levels of sound that can be saved or discarded depending on how it sounds to the ear. Is that, is that what the key is? Not right. Of okay. course, the key later on was to use psychoacoustics, to use the knowledge about uh, how our ears and brain work. Okay, well, if I skip ahead, then please uh, uh, that, explain. That came later. Okay. But the idea was uh, how to devise a coding system which would, on one hand, as people already tried in speech coding, uh, use some mathematical transform, which in the end is really a filter bank, like in having all the different frequencies separate, and then uh, using these values in a very flexible way uh, to really compress using Huffman coding and transmit them to some receiver. 
So, so that was this idea. It was just really signal processing. But as it turned out, that was very nicely combinable with the other idea uh, to not trying to optimize for best so-called noise ratio, so for least amount of noise, but to uh, use a model of human hearing uh, to say, okay, if I quantize, if I do not transmit the values exactly, I have to do it in a way that uh, it models what happens on the cochlea, in the ear, in terms of masking. Did you have any background in terms of, uh, you know, hearing and anatomy and things like that to understand that, or you had to you had to bring in uh, outside knowledge to make that? Um, there was some basic knowledge uh, on the level everybody in electrical engineering gets, mm -hmm. and apart from that, I looked into some textbook uh, from. Professor Zwicker, late Professor Zwicker, and uh, try to understand any, everything in there. Uh, in fact, uh, I was, it was not on my own, but somebody had told me, you have to look into this, this might be interesting. Uh, so I just looked into that textbook, tried to understand it, and to put it into the source code for the coding algorithm. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. So uh, please correct me if I'm wrong here, but the way I'm understanding it is you brought the, um, the advances that had made, been made in speech encoding and you combine them with what you're what you're trying to suss out in terms of um, human hearing and the layering of sound, so that you can you can cut out the unnecessary layers, and that that's the key breakthrough. That's the key breakthrough, together with a method to do that, which just gave me the levels of flexibility. Really, older systems had worked with a set uh, so-called bit allocation algorithm. Mm -hmm. And this doing indirectly helped to get around this bit allocation and making things much more flexible. And that helped uh, to give the degrees of freedom to adapt to really the properties of human hearing. And so um, uh, about what time are you able to first successfully demonstrate that, that, that you've, you've cracked this nut and, and you, can, you can send music across the ISDN lines like, like uh, your professor had been hoping to do? In fact, there was then other work and even other people's ideas coming in. Um, in end of 86, early 87, uh, all this was already on a level that I was ready to publish. And I did the first conference uh, publications. 
And then, in fact, another colleague said, oh, but in terms of the filter bank on how to the music signal into its components, uh, you have to look at this work from Australian colleagues. That could give you a big advantage. And I remember I uh, looked at the papers. I met one of these people at a conference in Dallas, Texas. I uh, went home, tried to understand everything, uh, filled in myself, myself the holes in their description because it was not really complete and found, oh, yes, this gives us a big improvement. And that was then in 1987 when things started to work much better. And I think it was early 1988 that we first demoed really this uh, coding methodology at the bitrate that it could go over ISDN to B channels, 128 kilobit per second in Europe. I'm I'm curious. Uh, were you were you doing all sorts of music? Was it you know was it mostly classical? Was it like are are you testing it with everything to make sure that obviously that, that, that it sounds right to the human ear, depending on on what it is? That was really the point. It was clear that it needed to be tested with completely different type of music. Uh, so uh, I said we had some funding. Uh, from a project, uh, and from this, I went to a local CD store, and I remember I told them, okay, I need around 30 or 40 different CDs, all types of music. What would you recommend? <laughs> Which, of course, he looked at me and what? <laughs> so I came home with a pool of CDs just so we had enough data to try our algorithms on. And um, I, I read famously that um, is it around this period that you encounter a problem um, with the with the Suzanne Vega song uh, Tom's Diner. Uh, that was a little bit later, but it was around that time in 1988. Mm -hmm. In fact, at that time, uh, it was not just me, but uh, I was at the university. There was the newly founded Fraunhofer Group in Erlangen under the direction of Dieter Seitze. And they again got some public funding to work towards digital radio. And uh, with that funding, uh, things went to just one PhD candidate doing experiments to really a group under the direction of uh, Heinz Gerhäuser, uh, which looked into these problems, both built hardware systems and at the same time tried to get more progress in the basic ideas. So I worked very closely with these people. And in 88, things already seemed to be quite nicely. I was preparing text for my uh, PhD thesis. And in conferences, I was thinking, okay, we have very good quality at these bit rates. And then I read in some high-fidelity, uh, high-end journal that people used Susan Vega's uh, song Tom Steiner, the a cappella version, 
to test loudspeakers. And then I got to the Fraunhofer lab and I saw, oh, they have the CD, let me listen to it. And I listened to it and then I said, okay, please transfer that to the computer. At that time, that was not yet easy. Mm -hmm. I need to try this. And that was, yeah, first a catastrophe because this song turned out to be much more difficult than anything else we had used before. So explain explain that. It, it ends up sounding bad um, when yes. you put it in the computer. Yeah. How, in what way does it sound bad? Some hoarse way, a voice. So at the lower bit rates, it's no longer her voice, but like uh, yeah, being very hoarse, uh, distorted in some way. I think we still have demos from that time. Mm -hmm. The original soundtrack, how it sounded when it was not good. And so is that, does that, the, the problem there is that, okay, maybe we haven't done all that we can to make the human voice um, as natural as it needs to, for, to the ear. In fact, uh, you can explain it in one way that human ears are specially trained to get clean understanding of human voice so we are we want to understand speech uh, so uh, the we seem to be more susceptible to changes to our voice signals than to other and on the other hand in terms of signal processing this signal had some properties which just made it more difficult than others uh, in the end, we found out with this method that our models of human hearing were, in fact, too simple, not good enough. So we had two big steps to get rid of that problem. The first one was to get better understanding of human hearing and change our so-called psychoacoustic models. And... Then at some point in time, we started to do uh, stereo encoding using uh, similarities between left and right channel. And because Susan Vega really stands in the middle, this piece, uh, of course, when using this, uh, things became easy. Uh, but uh, this is still a test item uh, used in the MPEG group until today. Mm -hmm. Um, so even though that was a, a big hurdle, it, it ended up helping you helping you solve the problem and and um, and get it as perfect as possible. Of course, yeah. No, that's really in the end it worked out, and we were really for a number of years hunting for such difficult items to find out where the problems are. It's even today to do something which is nice for seventy percent of the music is very easy. That's an undergraduate project. Mm -hmm. But to get it to the level that it's really perfect or near perfect for everything, that's the work. So you, I believe, uh, uh, published this in your doctoral thesis in 1989. Um, and it's, it's uh, the algorithm that you, you, you term it uh, optimum coding in the frequency domain, right? And, and there's a codec related to that. Correct. Yeah. That was how I named the algorithm at that time, um, just coming from reading somewhere that people used to call entropy coding optimum coding. Today, we would say entropy coding. 
And that was just a basis with already a number of these ideas. But of course, going from there to uh, MPEG Audio 3 is still some way. There were other people involved and more work involved. Well, so eventually you, you, you join the Fraunhofer Society and, and you're continuing to work on, on this project as it's evolving, but it now reaches a stage where um, the international standards committees start to get involved and, and that's when you start to work with MPEG? That's correct. In fact, that was end of 88, so just before I finished uh, my PhD thesis. And uh, at that time... Uh, there was a discussion uh, on one hand in this digital radio project to go on and Leonardo Schiaglione had started this effort to do movies on CD-ROM and other storage media and so on. And uh, in fact, the people active on source coding in the... Uh, radio project said okay if there's a call for an international standard uh, let's see whether we can influence that and then take this for digital radio in Europe uh, so everybody was there I remember the very first meeting of this audio subgroup within the moving pictures experts group uh, that took part end of November early December in Hanover it was snowing what year? 1988. 88. Okay, go ahead. And uh, basically, everybody we had heard about doing similar research was there, and another few we hadn't heard about. And there, the process was started to uh, do requirements to discuss how things should be tested, and so on and so on. So there's a there's several tracks going here. Some people are working on um, putting putting this media on things like CD-ROM, and others are are you focusing more on like the um, digital radio aspect of it? Uh, no, in fact, the idea was to have one system which okay. would be suitable for everything. That was really the idea, and that we turned out in the end to have three different modes, three layers in the standard. Uh, wasn't there in the original plan? We want to build one standard for audio coding on different uh, types of media and for digital radio and so on. So the requirements read in a way that the systems should be usable for all these different applications. Okay, so then that's where we get to the the layer one, layer two, and eventually layer three. Um, I had read that uh, there was slow adoption and that a, a lot of, I don't know, uh, companies or people thought that, that layer two was good enough. Yeah. In fact, first we had to get to this at all. Okay, so go on. There was a competitive phase where people uh, did tests. There was a grouping into... Uh, because MPEG, I think, that they have uh, solutions for audio coding, and MPEG wanted didn't want just to test fourteen different systems. So they said, "Okay, you have to work together." 
so we worked with Thompson in Hanover and especially with AT&T Bell Labs in Murray Hill uh, with, for one of these proposals called ASPEC. And our colleague from the same digital radio project in Munich, uh, IRT, worked together uh, with Philips and with the French Research Institute. And we really had a neck-to-neck -neck race in getting the best system. And in fact, that helped everybody because due to the direct ties, we had some idea what the others could do and we always wanted to be better. So we really had the work for uh, some time to do the best system. And there were a lot of modifications to the system in that time. In fact, that was when I was for some time no longer in Erlangen, but did my postdoc time at AT&T Bell Labs together with Jim Johnston. And in fact, that was a great cooperation because uh, Jim Johnston called JJ independently had come up with some similar ideas. So we didn't have to fight about anything. We just took all our ideas together to improve everything. So what? Uh, so what are the what? What were the three main competing standards that 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 were competing to win out here? Uh, in fact, it was four different ones. Okay. We had uh, this aspect. Uh, we had the system with people from Munich and Eindhoven and so on uh, called uh, <clears throat> Maskam uh, or Musicam. Uh, we had uh, some system proposed by British Telecom and I don't remember who was it then. Mm -hmm. And we had a system proposed by four Japanese companies. Uh, and of these four proposals in the first round of there were two very clearly ahead but neck to neck, and that was the uh, Musicam proposal and the Aspect proposal. And then we had a really difficult time in the standards committee because depending on how you look at the results uh, for best audio quality at the low bit rates, our proposal was better. If you took in complexity figures and so on, people thought that the music and proposal was better. So after long discussions, there was a decision in the standards committee to have a system with different so-called layers, different modes. And for that, Philips added a lower complexity version. That was then layer one. So that was the idea of having layer one, layer two, layer three, mm -hmm. which still had to go through more verification so it was in uh, end of 91 that we finally had a prototype which really worked well and which was the first system to be roughly in line what we today call MP3. Mm -hmm. So um, that was in 91, you say? Yes. Still more work to be done. Right. It was not finalized. So uh, walk me through uh, the next couple years, because at some point, you know, obviously 94, um, the, when the web starts to go mainstream and take off, 
clearly you have to see at some point that this is really the killer application, as they say, for the technology that you're working on. So walk me through how we get to there. Yes. In fact, we first still had to work on the system. Uh, then uh, for the first time, everybody, especially the consumer electronic company, said, okay, layer two is the right compromise between audio quality and cost, so we decide to use layer two. Uh, so our system seemed to be left in the dark. Like, I remember one conference uh, when discussing different codecs and uh, somebody representing uh, the Musicam site uh, said, oh, and by the way, there is this layer three and number of boxes of equipment in the world which supports the standard is two-digit, is less than 100. Mm -hmm. And the problem was he was right at that mm -hmm. point in time. <laughs> So there was really a problem, and in fact, that was around the time when I moved from the university to Fraunhofer. So suddenly, I was no longer just the scientist, but I was responsible uh, for getting money in for that department which worked on audio technology. And we had some early hard times, and then, of course, Internet came up, and we had the first uh, licensees in the professional area. In fact, for example, one company from Cleveland, Ohio, called Teller Systems, they are still around. Um, only their founder, unfortunately, passed away. Uh, but they licensed our technology and they sold these systems on the U.S. market for the purpose of sending music over phone lines. So mm -hmm. back to the original idea of Seitzer. Mm -hmm. That were some of the first applications, but we were always thinking, what can we do next? Because we really all believe we have the best technology in the world. The world has to recognize that and use our technology. So I still remember one meeting. I think it must have been in 94 uh, when we discussed different options in our department. And we said, okay, we have a window of opportunity to make MPEG Audio Layer 3 into the Internet Audio Standard. That was a time when uh, there were just the first applications like Progressive Networks was out there with Real Audio. Mm -hmm. Now the company is called Real Networks. Right. Um, and so on. So we said, okay, we have a chance. What do we need to do? In fact, around the same time, PCs for the first time got fast enough to do on-the-fly coding of layer three signals. Mm -hmm. We first had to do some bad tricks to make that work, but it did. So you could have, if your computer was equipped with a sound card, which at that time was not yet standard, if it was equipped with a sound card, you could uh, have an MPEG audio layer three file on your hard disk and listen to the music using 100% CPU time. <laughs> so as um, 
so as the how 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 does MP3 overcome real audio in terms of becoming the standard on the web? Because we, we've had Rob Glazer of, of Real Networks uh, on the on the program previously. Uh, what is it that you do? What decision that you make that that allows MP3 to basically become the standard on the web? I think we took the right compromise in terms of business models uh, to, on one hand, still keep uh, royalty uh, income flowing and, on the other hand, making it easier to be used for PCs and for Internet applications. Uh, so at that time, we said, okay, uh, for decoding uh, on PCs, PCs very narrowly defined. So your smartphones are not PCs in that definition. Mm-hmm. Good for us today. <laughs> right. Uh, uh, PCs in this narrow definition, the company would just pay some flat fee to have decoding everywhere. And in fact, Microsoft and Apple relatively early took such licenses. And uh, for encoding, we said, okay, that's a per unit fee. Of course, if a company pays, they can do a buyout. Uh, but it was very large sums of money. And with that, and then some applications like the Music Match Shookbox, mm-hmm. uh, which was shareware, and we had some special uh, rules for shareware, still going, pay, getting paid per unit and so on. Uh, we made a good offer uh, for the commercial companies in the field. And of course, at Time and I heard part of that story only much, much later. Uh, people who wanted to exchange uh, music over internet in the US discussed which codec to choose, and they thought, okay, this MP3 is a good opportunity. They decided to use that. We helped with making software available. In fact, we did a Windows based decoder early on. When file extension. So in 95, we internally discussed what file extension we would use for this MPEG audio layer 3. In Windows 3.1, you were allowed only three letters. Somebody had used .mp2 for layer 2 files, so we said, okay, then we will use mp3 for MPEG audio layer 3. I I wanted to point out, uh, because I think that you used July fourteenth, nineteen ninety five, as the sort of birthday for MP three because that's that's the date when you you settle on MP three as the name. That's correct. Yes. So we're, we're coming I on still, tw- twenty years exactly. Yes, and I still got this email from twenty years ago. And so <laughs> the, what, the email is is that you just you put that out as a proposal and everybody says yeah that's the way to go. Uh, there was some internal discussion. So in fact, I was a department head, uh, but. Uh, one of the people at Bonhoeffer was leading the discussion, uh, saying, okay, they assist that. Uh, a number of people did their comments. And then uh, in a little meeting, we said, okay, let's take MP3. And he announced, uh, Seller is his name. Um, he announced internally in our department, from now on, we will use the file extension.mp3 for all our 
programs, it has a reason, believe me. <laughs> Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. So um, all these things that you've, you've discussed, um, the, the uh, you know, working with Windows, obviously when, um, when Microsoft uh, incorporates that into um, their Windows media player, that had to be a big deal for adoption as well, right? Yes, certainly that helped a lot. It was at the time when already a lot of people use MP3, but uh, it helped clearly. So it was a combination of, of working with the big companies like that, but also being friendly um, and working well with some of these smaller, you know, jukebox program developers and things like that, that, that sort of led to the, the, it taking off. You could say it that way, yes. Okay. And of course, the it was a Many little people who said they want to exchange music using the internet. Of course, as we found later on, a lot of people did not care about who owned the rights. And that's something I never endorsed. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we never endorsed. Mm -hmm. So I still have the uh, strong opinion that musicians, all the artists, composers, and everybody helping to distribute music should be paid for their work. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, let's let's underline that. Um, so essentially, is there ever a time, I think I read that somebody says to you at some conference or something at some point that, boy, this is the, the music business is in trouble because of your technology. And until that point, you hadn't really thought that through in terms of that that could be a problem? Yes, but that was already end of 1994, so very early. Wow, okay. So <laughs> does there come a point when um, when you attempt to work with the, the music industry, the record labels, um, to say, hey, th this technology is out there, but we're, we're, you know, we're pro-artist uh, rights and we're, we're pro-people being paid for their work. So did you try to work with them to, to ad adapt this technology? Uh, yes, in fact, several times. Uh, the first, uh, I was not personally there, but some of our group, uh, including uh, some project partner from Norway, uh, went Munich to visit uh, one of the music companies uh, having headquarters in Munich at that time. And they showed what we could do and earned an answer like, this is very interesting, you have done good research, but what has that to do with us? <laughs> <laughs> so that was really late 94, around the time when Ricky Adar came to us from the UK and told us, do you know that you will destroy the music industry? And at the time, what I learned later that Ricky Adar went to different meetings of the music industry to tell them about what was going on. So that was the first one. In fact, around that time, a little bit later, we started to work on what today is called digital rights management. We had a complete solution for that. Uh, some of it was used in products by Bertelsmann, but it was not used widely. Um, later on, we were in intensive discussions 
uh, with a group uh, set up by the rights organizations, including GEMA and all the U.S. Uh, rights organizations and so on, uh, which wanted to see what is going on and so on. So we discussed the issues with them. Um, in, I think it was early 1998, uh, I was for a visit in Washington, D.C. anyway, and I already had some contact uh, to the RAAA, the Recording Industry Association of America. So I wrote a mail. I could uh, come to visit you to discuss these issues. And said, yes, great. We have heard about you. We would love to talk to you. Uh, so I went to RAAA headquarters, discussed different strategies, what to do, and made it very clear we are not interested in the death of the music industry. Uh, in the end, uh, there was no direct come out from this, but later on, uh, people started the Secure Digital Music Initiative, SDMI. And that was then in 9-2000, and I went to a lot of these meetings. Uh, we were into all these discussions about digital rights management and how to do that. Uh, the problem there was that uh, somehow there were some companies not interested in any technical standard, in any interoperability. And I told them, look, uh, you can either you take the task to do a technical standard which makes sure that every service selling music and every device work together. You have a universal system. Right. If you don't do that, I see a clear winner, and that is MP3 without any protection, without any digital rights management. It's not our problem if that happens, and that's in fact what well, later on. And, and, and the lesson learned there is that it was about ease of use for the, for the end user at that point. Exactly. And I remember at the very first meeting of SDMI, I gave a short speech uh, on the plenary, and I said, look, whatever you do, most important is ease of use, second important is ease of use, third important is ease of use, and then you have <laughs> right. to look at other things. So that puts you in an interesting position. Um, you know, when, when Napster starts to happen uh, in, in 99, 2000, on the one hand, you know, you must be thrilled because this really is the technology you've developed being embraced by the masses, being used by the masses, but in a way that you don't intend and also in a way that you've warned uh, the industry that this might happen. So what what it, what were your feelings when, when Napster exploded onto the scene? As you see, as you said, very feeling, of course, uh, we love to see that our technology was applied. Uh, we love to see that MP3 players started to emerge, so we got revenues from hardware licensing, and we saw more and more of these devices coming in. Uh, but then, uh, as being a music lover, I thought, okay, but be careful. We need a way that musicians and artists, composers, will be paid in the future as well. Right. Um 
so obviously, you know, this is a, a, a long saga for <laughs> a story for another time, how the, the record industry tries to adapt. And then finally, Apple comes in uh, with the iTunes system. And, and although iTunes uh, initially launches only with AAC, correct? Uh, yes and no. The iTunes software, of course, was MP3 as well. And uh, the oh, iPod, right. even right. the very first, played MP3. Oh, that's right. I forgot that. I'm sorry. But uh, iTunes Music Shop was AAC, in fact, a protected version of AAC to start with. Right. Because later, yeah. at that point, MP3 was basically the gold standard for everybody. I mean, they were called MP3 players. So I, I had forgotten that they had to play. It was the, it was the, the music they sold, it sold in the iTunes store that was AAC. Yes. Okay. And um, so, so what did you think of that model? That that finally, um, you know, because that's led to a world where uh, digital rules over the physical. You know, the MP3 has won; it is the standard. That's what we had seen coming for quite some time, and it was a very good feeling. <laughs> In fact, even before the iPod, I remember I was on a business travel to Hong Kong, and I saw some electronic or uh showing in window 30 different brands and uh, versions of mp3 players and i said okay that's it mm -hmm. we have one <laughs> finally did you did you um purchase any of the early mp3 players yourself uh, yes in fact that was around the time when i started to buy my own little museum mm -hmm. oh so you have a museum of various devices Yes, I think I have 15 or 20 by now. Right, right. Uh, did you have the first iPod by any chance? First. I got, I think, second or third generation iPod. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, a couple other personal questions. Uh, did you ever end up, have you ever met Sean Fanning? Um, Sean Fanning, I don't think so, no. I've met some of the other people. In fact, the founder of mp3.com. Mm -hmm. I met several times over the years, but not Sean Fanning. Uh, you did end up meeting uh, Suzanne Vega at one point, though. Yes. In fact, twice at the end. So she's she's familiar. She knows that her song had this uh, role in, in the history of the technology. Yes. In fact, uh, when I first met her, it was only a couple of months earlier that somebody told her about this. And then, uh, in fact, I still like her music a lot. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's very nice. And uh, I know that she really likes uh, the mother of MP3 because of this song. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I feel like uh, U.S. business journalists especially would, would love to ask the question, uh, you know, you could be a billionaire off of this technology, but in fact... Um, as you said, um, the Institute gets licenses, uh, has made quite a bit of money off of the MP3 technology over the years, yes. right? That's correct. The Institute has uh, made a lot of money. Uh, fortunately, compared to my colleagues in the US, in Germany, there's a law that if your company makes a lot of money from patents, then the inventors have to get some share of that. This is money which does not just go to myself because, as I said, we've been a team. We have mm -hmm. a lot of people working together, and I always have the feeling, okay, everybody looks at me when talking about the invention of MP3, but 
know who else was involved and there are many more good ideas. There's JJ, there's a whole group in Erlangen and so on and so on. So you would you would resist the, the title father of the MP3 or anything like that? Yeah, because there's not one father. Right. Uh, somebody who has done very important contributions, certainly, yes. So being in the first line is correct, but being the only one is completely incorrect. Uh, I'd, I'd like to I'd like to finish up with just a couple you know future looking kind of questions. The first being um, the whole reason to do digital compression in the first place is because of limits of storage and bandwidth. Can you see a day, maybe in the near future, when the need for compression is not there because our, our networks and our, our storage capacities have evolved to the point where it's not necessary? Okay, the first time somebody told me, oh, we soon will not be needed because we have so much bandwidth, was in the mid-80s. Okay, all right. <laughs> so, yes, there's always seem to be some applications where you do need uh, low bitrate coding, where you do translate less bandwidth into more channels and more possibilities and so on. Uh, on the other hand, for example, for studio use, I tell everybody, don't do low-rate coding at all. Mm. Use high-res, and this is strictly an end-user format. Um, for streaming, internet radio and such, we are still in the situation that I see too many of these services operating at too low bit rates. So mm. I first would like them to get up to reasonable quality using high efficiency AAC or whatever. Uh, in fact, I c it's easy for me to recommend AAC because we've been heavily involved in that development as well. Mm -hmm. So this feels like a child as well. Um, and so what are you working on today? And, and is, are you still working on, on exactly the same, these same problems, same questions? Uh, no, in some sense, for myself, both the topic of research have changed and, of course, the position has changed drastically. So, on one hand, there is more research on audio coding, and there is a now quite large, I think the largest of its kind in the world, group in Erlangen who continues to work uh, on audio coding topics. The last standard heavily influenced by them and in fact, with some input from Ilmenau as well, is MPEG-H to have 3D audio for future services. What is, what is 3D audio? Uh, using a number of loudspeakers around and up there to really get immersive audio. Mm. And that's been, in fact, a research topic in Ilmenau for the past 15 years, how to get better illusion. Because even with surround systems, you have this one spot in the middle where it sounds reasonably well, but it's not perfect. You don't get real illusion. Uh, so, in fact, for all Star Trek fans out there, there's the symbol of the holodeck. We want to do right. the acoustic part of that. I was going to say, with, with all the, the new virtual reality, the next generation of virtual yes. reality coming out, I can see that's the application for that. Yes, exactly. So there's a number of more applications, but that's really one wish that this should be possible. And there's still a lot of work to be done, including some basic research. We are doing basic research in cognition, in 
hearing here at the university in Ilmenau to find out what really constitutes all the parameters uh, for getting auditory illusion, for having the feeling of being somewhere else. So that's one thing. And talking about the different role, of course, I'm now as the director of the Fraunhofer Institute in Ilmenau and professor in the situation, Dieter Seitzer has been uh, these uh, yeah, 35 years ago. Uh, great young people who do the research and giving them a task, telling them, look, there's somebody which should be possible. Can you make it? Even, even, so if, the, uh, even if the patent officer tells you it's impossible. <laughs> exactly, yes. Well, so then my final question is just that, you know, um, so next month will be uh, 20 years since the birthday of, of MP3, uh, 35 years since you started this this project. How does it feel to, to look back 20, 35 years on on something that, that was assigned to you for, for from your pr professor? Um, I have to admit, uh, I still sometimes feel like, am I dreaming or is this real? Uh Of course, as a young student, you are dreaming about success and things being used and so on. But things became so much more successful. Uh, it's really, for me, it's, of course, the story of my life. And uh, all I have to say to the young people is, look at this and look, you got a chance. Even if it's just technology, if it's just electrical engineering, You can do something which is important and which helps you. And that's the one thing I like best that even decades later, a lot of people come to you and say thank you for the technology. I will say thank you personally as well. Um, Carl Heitz Brandenburg, thank you for coming on the Internet History Podcast and remembering all that for us. You're very welcome. Thank you. If this is the first time you're listening to this podcast, please subscribe to us on your podcast app of choice. There's plenty more great internet history where that came from. And if you're a longtime listener, then you know what to do to help us out. Rate and review us on iTunes. Because iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more great reviews we get, the more people will discover us. As always, there's more info on our website, www.internethistorypodcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at NetHistoryPod, and my personal Twitter is at BrianMCC. Thanks for listening.